Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello and welcome to Political Football, the podcast that digs into the global political stories behind the sport. I'm Jason Cowley, editor of The New Statesman. And I'm Stephen Bush, special correspondent at The New Statesman. This is a special series devoted to the 2018 World Cup. And over the next few weeks, we're going to be following all the action in Russia and analysing it with our guests. Today, I'm delighted to say we're joined by David Winner, journalist and acclaimed author of Brilliant Orange, the neurotic genius of Dutch football. Welcome, gentlemen. David, the tournament so far, what do you make of it? I've I've been enjoying it. Lovely sort of uh, David and Goliath stuff. Uh, Some unexpected games. One absolutely gorgeous game, the 3-3 between Spain and Portugal. That was a, a classic. No ructions off the field, apart from Saudi Arabia's plane catching fire last night. Um, but everybody landed safely. No, it's it's much better than I expected. It's good. Stephen? Yeah, it's been, a, I think, a really exciting World Cup. So yesterday I watched uh, South Korea versus Sweden. And even that, which I think is probably the lowest quality game I've watched in terms of the players on either side, was actually quite end-to-end because they were bad in the same way right you, they yeah they they were about at each other's level and it was a sort of pleasant open game even though neither had all that much quality it's been a great world cup so far i mean the one thing i'm finding very distressing is i'm part of the parliamentary press galleries football uh, lobby <laughs> league i am currently not quite i'm for second from the bottom but maddeningly on my desk, which I share with Patrick Maguire, our political correspondent, and Sienna Rogers at Labour List, Sienna is seventh, Patrick is uh, is thirtieth. So I'm finding there are, it's a hundred and seventy eight person strong league. So I'm one hundred and seventy seventh. So I'm finding that quite painful. But other than that, I'm enjoying the tournament. Yeah, I'm, I, there, there've been some good games. I thought you're right, David. I thought the Spain Portugal game was sensational. I particularly liked the the moment when Portugal were three two down. And Ronaldo was lining up for the free kick. You know, we had all the posturing, the breathing, tugging his short up, shorts up, but he delivered. Yeah, he yeah. scored. What do you think of that moment? It was, it was magnificent. Yeah. <clears throat> it reminded me of the way he sets himself. Yeah. And he looks at the target and he looks down. He does all his mental routines. It's very much like Johnny Wilkinson. Yes. It was... And it's kind of... Uh, I've always thought that the strike rate from free kicks near the penalty area should be higher. And people who were really good at it 
like uh, Ronald Koeman or Roberto Carlos. Um, and who was the great Yugoslav was, was Serbian? Brilliant. Was it Mihailovic? Mihailovic was yeah. from Long Range. Long Range, yeah. yeah. They should be hitting the target more often. And it was just the perfect free kick and it was the perfect moment. And I've had a growing soft spot for for Ronaldo for some years. Uh, I remember I did a book with Rio Ferdinand and I I listened to him being very fond of Ronaldo and, and he, you know, his posturing and his you know, muscle pumping stuff and the way he takes his shirt off to reveal all his all his muscles. It pisses a lot of people off. Well, it's a decent torso. He's got a, to show. You know, if I had that, I'd do it too probably. But anyway, so I, I sort of absorbed some of Rio's fondness for him and seeing him as, you know, this, this kid from the streets really who became great, made himself great and, of course, exalts in it and you kind of go along with him. Yeah, I remember when I was at The Observer, we, we sent... Um, a colleague to Madeira, actually, was where he was born. He was born in a tin shack yeah, yeah. on Madeira, the island of Madeira. And as you say, wonderfully talented, but willed himself to become a, a true great. And the contrast with his great rival, Messi, missed a penalty at this yeah. World Cup. Yeah. So Ronaldo's 3-0 up on goals against Messi. OK, so last night was the England game. What do you think, Stephen? I mean, from a kind of technical perspective, I think it was the most enjoyable England performance. I mean, it was quite tense. I watched it in the Strangers Bar in Westminster with the backdrop of uh, Tracy Brabin, the MP for Batley and Sven, swearing every time (laughs) an England player uh, missed a sitter. But um, I thought it was, other than the frustration and the failure to turn the quite nice approach play into goals, it was the first time since about 2002 that I feel I would have watched an England game if I didn't have a stake in the outcome. It's still aside with a number of weak points, not least Ashley Young. Why? I thought he had a bad game with lots of unnecessary fouls, which slowed down the game. But it was just quite nice to enjoy England and see England passing the ball. I mean, it did troublingly feel a lot like an Arsenal performance. Lots of nice approach play, failing to kill the game off, a stupid penalty to give away. I don't understand what Kyle Walker was thinking. And except with the difference that there was a late winner as opposed to a disappointing draw. And I think it was a good good result and sets England well to get out of the group. Yeah, we spoke about Ashley Young and this this willingness to always pull the ball onto his onto his right foot. And indeed, there couldn't be a greater contrast with our free kick taker being Ashley Young and Kieran Trippier as a, compared with, say, someone like um, Christian Ronaldo. David, what did, what did you make of the performance last night? I enjoyed it too. And, uh, and like Stephen, I was enjoying the style of play. And I was thinking how un-English it was uh, in a good way. You know, playing like a modern European team, movement, possession, a passing game, quite cerebral, very technical. You know, the technical level is much higher in this team than it has been in the past. Even when we've had stars, we've also had lots of technical shortcomings. Um, So I thought it was good. Um, Weaknesses, yes, they missed loads of chances. Finishing is a problem. But, Lingard, um, Lingard in particular, he yeah. ran into good positions, but he's, I mean, he but could I, have I'm scored not, in the early minutes, couldn't he? But yeah, he and there was that one that it was unlucky to hit the post. Hit the post. <clears throat> but uh, I wasn't too bothered by that. I think we'll have trouble when we meet a team that attacks, you know, because they basically said, come and attack us with, with you know, nine, nine or ten, and we'll just basically sit back and absorb everything. And they very nearly got away with it. It was only that Algerian, uh, Tunisian, sorry, uh, player who dribbles into the corner and gives us the corner that, that that results in the final goal. So other teams will be more difficult to play against. But I I, I like his pattern. I like his approach. 
um, it was very encouraging. You you spoke about the the the, the good technical ability of, of the team and the way they tried to play in a more European style or, or a style we would have once have recognised as more continental European. I was concerned about some of the play out of the from the back. I mean, Harry Maguire, the Leicester City stopper, who is good on the ball, gave the ball away on a couple of occasions in dangerous areas. John Stones tends to over elaborate. And if they did that against better teams, sure. we could be in deep trouble, Stephen, do you think? Oh, yeah, I do think there was a, a soft under underbelly. And yeah, so my, my feeling going into that game is I can't couldn't understand why you would play Walker in the centre of a of a three. Trippier's delivery is a lot better, but that Walker gave away a silly, silly penalty. And as you say, there were times when uh, Maguire's over, uh, Maguire gave the ball away, Stones' over-elaboration was a problem. Equally, I think it... I was hugely cheered that in the 80th minute to the goal, needing a goal, they didn't start doing fruitless no, no, no. long balls yeah. to no, Harry Kane. They kept it on the deck and no. believed that a goal would would come. So the mentality is, is I think, clearly stronger. Or, or the faith in Southgate, one way or the other, that's very positive. But I, yeah, I did. Um, I don't expect this England side will have very many clean sheets in this tournament. We um, spoke last week about the likability of this group of players. And when you talk to sports journalists who are in and around the squad, they say it's it, it's a more open environment. And these guys are, are less grand than some of the players in recent times. Do you, less, like, do you less like to look cliquey. at them? Less cliquey. Yeah. Um, Harry Kane is obviously the leader, but he seems a, yeah. an unusually humble humble man, age 24. I'm worried about the lack of goals elsewhere in the team Sterling's got an appalling record for England when it comes to scoring goals. Where, what, what do you think, David? Where are the goals I, I, coming well, from? Well, if, if Welbeck, we we know. I think we're all Arsenal supporters here. We know Welbeck's weaknesses. He has so a good scoring record for England, though, Danny Welbeck. True, but, but he won't be on the pitch much. I don't think. No, uh, Rashford is good. I, I think you know. Look, it's it's not a great team. Uh, there will be weaknesses. Um, the finishing is part of the weakness. Um, the lack of. Somebody, you know, you, there was a period in, uh, in last night's game where you really cried out for a fit Jack Wilshire to come on and, and make, it, make it make a. That's something from the distant past, there, isn't it? A fit Jack Wilshire. <laughs> yeah, but it, I mean, some a player of that ilk yes. who can do the unexpected in the middle, dribble, carry the ball, play the unexpected pass. It's all a little bit predictable. They're all a little bit samey, but they have a nice cohesion. They they move well. They move, you know, the patterns that they were making. Were rather were rather nice. They were nothing hugely sophisticated, but it was it was it was very refreshing. So I, I'm not too bothered. You know, if you if you play in that way, and the pressing was terrific, especially in the first half, that was really outstanding. So if you play in that way, you will you know they will get to the quarterfinal. I'm sure. And it was very hot there. It was in the high twenties, yeah. wasn't it? Very very humid and some strange flies. Were very kind of strange. Swirling around. It was like a snowstorm of flies. A snowstorm <laughs> of flies. And what do you make of um, Gareth Southgate, David? I'm a bit of a fan. He's the thing I like best about him is that he's very quietly, without drawing any flack for anybody, he's quietly junked the old thud and blunder. There is no sort of geeing up in the spirit of Rudyard Kipling. There's no, there's no uh, invocations of '66 and the glories of of English football and how we ought to be at the top of the tree, um, which is long, long overdue. Uh, Roy Hodgson, I think, was moving in that direction. And he had a couple of really dreadful tournaments, which didn't burnish his reputation. But you know, it's it's uh, really been decades that we've we've hung on to this imperial notion, essentially, <clears throat> that uh, you know we should we have a divine right to be uh, a global superpower, 
in geopolitics and in football. You and know, do you see we, some of those attitudes also in the in the Brexit debate? Absolutely. The uh, some of the some of the a lot of the emotions, the delusions, and the uh, sort of viciousness towards foreigners was incubated in football, especially in relation to the national team, decades before it was weaponized politically and gave us this nightmare of Brexit. Um, you can see in the attitudes in the 70s, you know, the key, the key date is, is not winning the World Cup in 66, it's losing to the Germans uh, June the 14th, 1970. Sunday, Mexico World Cup. Mexico World Cup, Sunday evening it was. And, uh, Although, of course, we might not have gone into the EU had it not been for that goal, which may have <laughs> helped Harold Wilson lose the election unexpectedly a couple of, month, a couple of no, days we afterwards. Were, uh, he discounted that, didn't he? It was, that's an urban, political urban myth. Well, Wilson blames the poor balance of payment figures for, for turning <laughs> it around. Obviously but, no um, interest to anybody, really. This is the third German goal we're talking about in yeah, 1970 the, the, in the quarterfinal, which we lost 3-2. Yeah, or the, actually the, the crucial one in that game is the, is the one that Benetti, is the fairly ordinary shot from Franz Beckenbauer that Benetti fumbles in. Two, that's 2-1 and then the... But why was Collapse that, David, happens. such a crucial moment for you? Why was it big? Well, it, it, it's the end of uh, natural English superiority, which in the early decades of the game was, it was just obvious. The, the English were better than everybody else. We'd invented the game. But the Hungarians hadn't already done that? The Hungarians had done Wembley. that. And then, and then sort of uh, the world had been set on its right axis by winning in 66. So somehow the... And there was no great trauma about the Hungarians winning in 53. They came, ended uh, England's un unbeaten home record, famously. It humiliated us, except it wasn't really taken as a humiliation. There were no headlines of the kind that, that, we, that happened around the time of Graham Taylor, for example. Yes. Nothing like that. There was, no, um, there was a, a rather warm, generous feeling towards the Hungarians. Then 66, everything was, was, was good again. And it was and a good 70, team. It was and often it, said that this was a better English better squad team, that, yeah. went, that went to, still under the leadership of Bobby Moore as captain and Sir Alf Ramsey as coach. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. but it's often said it was a better squad of players. Yes. And when they met Brazil in the in the in the group match and Brazil narrowly won, and Pelé and, and Bobby Moore famously there's a lovely picture of them meeting after the game and swapping shirts. And you know, everybody said, We'll see you again in the final. That was that was what was assumed. And what the England were coasting in that quarterfinal game against the West West Germans. Um, they were leading 2-0, yeah? They were leading 2-0 with 20 minutes to go. And then uh, the sky fell in. Mm. And then through the rest of that decade, it got worse and worse and worse. So to, it, the 70 game was put down as a, a you know freak of nature almost. Um, Gordon Banks had been food poisoning victim and hadn't played in that game. And Bonetti came in and made his mistake. No such excuses available two years later when they lost in the European quarterfinal at Wembley, humiliated, genuinely so, 3-1, Gunter Netzer sort of rampaging through the middle against of Against the, the Germans again. Against the Germans again. And um, didn't qualify for the 74, 74 or World 78 Cup. World Cups. And you've also got, off the field, you've got the, the defeat by Italy that puts us out of, of the 78 World Cup is same year as the IMF crisis. Um, declinism as a political idea becomes very vivid during that decade and it's kind of matched and mirrored off the field by a sort of self-loathing that develops around football. And you have the private Neesden column where, which gets going in the 70s where, you know, the, the Neesden Football Club is the ridiculous joke club is a metaphor for England and for the England football team and everything, uh, club football too. 
And when we do get back into a, into a tournament in 1980, that's a humiliation of a different kind because the first game is, uh, is marred by rioting yes, in the, the Stadio Cominale in Turin. Uh, and that's a, a, a disgrace. And through the 80s, you know, the, you get Heisel and it's, it only begins to pick up again uh, 20 years after 1970 in 1990. Italia 90. St- um, Stephen, obviously, you weren't born during the, in, in the 1970s, but that period um, David's talking about, it was ex- there was a sense of extraordinary extraordinary violence associated yes. with the England national side because of the hooligan element that followed them. Many of many of these people were also hard right nationalists, and it was a really deeply unpleasant time. What what are, what are your recollections now of the England team compared with what you read about the England team in the nineteen seventies and those who followed it? Well, it's odd because now, in an odd way, the it, yeah, this strange thing. I feel if I had been born in the seventies, the England team would probably have felt quite exclusive to watch. It's why I think a lot of um, ethnic minority football fans of that age are less interested in the national team. Now, of course, it's exclusive to watch live because of the cost of the game, but it doesn't have any of that same kind of weightedness. Of course, the interesting um, 1975 with the first referendum where we emphatically voted to remain in the in the European Union and, and the 2016 one where we voted narrowly to leave it is that the United Kingdom did not have a narrative of decline around it in the same way in 2016 at least certainly not uh, relative to the uh, the European Union, whereas the nations of the six were booming in 75. The weird thing is, I the, the thing I've always had with England is that up until this side, I've struggled to eradicate the fact that many of its key players remind me of people who I really disliked at school. Um, <laughs> you know, like there were just, you know, there were just so many people who, I mean, bizarrely, despite the fact that my... School was sort of right in the kind of heart of what ought to have been West Ham Arsenal territory. We had three Chelsea fans who we were unable to to bully out of it, all of <laughs> whom basically resembled John Terry, all of whom were 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 deeply un, unpleasant. And so I think for most of my teenage years, I disliked the England uh, the England side, partly because we would continually be given a hard time by the West Fa- West Ham fans at school. Arsenal had no English players. West Ham had won the cup. All of that noise, um, and so. Up in and once TA retired from football and the national side, there wasn't really an Arsenal player to cheer for Tony in Evans. that team. Yeah, in I that was, team. I was struggling. Uh, yeah, Thierry Henry. No, no. you mean the great Tony yeah. Adams? Yeah. yeah, there wasn't really someone to to cheer Tone. for from an Arsenal side. Now, weirdly, there are no Arsenal players in the starting well, Danny, lineup. Danny Welbeck is in the squad, isn't he? Yeah, but let's face it, Welbeck is not going to play a minute. Oh, he will come on. He'll, he will come we'll on. We'll be yeah, chasing when, yeah, you know, two we, goals. Yeah, I guess when we go out, he yeah. will come on. To... But, but the dislikability of England is interesting. Um, I think this particular group are quite likeable. Very. Yeah. And they seem a very harmonious multiracial squad, which is excellent. Southgate has a certain modest patriotism. You yes, know, he's an English yes. patriot. Yeah, yeah. He said that explicitly before the match. I think he's referenced that his grandfather had, was a Marine and he he had been deeply honoured to play for England as a player and now to be England's coach. But there's a sort of modesty about yes. um, Southgate, which which I there's like. There's no jingo there. There's no, there's no jingoism. There's no hard nationalism. There's no wrapping himself in the flag. There's no two world wars, one cup, which no, I think no. is one of the things which is always hard to like about yes. England is that kind of, well, <clears throat> that backdrop from most of the press, yeah. which yeah. he has he has somehow managed to to euthanise. Yeah. yeah. 
It's, when you look at pictures, very interestingly, and I was looking back at footage from 66, the World Cup final at Wembley, which England won 4-2 after extra time against Germany, and indeed photographs. And what's missing is the flag of St. George. Yes, yes, yes. That's, I mean, that's really interesting. And then you see mostly in the crowd is the Union Jack yeah, yeah. at a time when Englishness and Britishness, at least for the English, was synonymous, synonymous yeah. or interchangeable. When did we see England fans begin to adopt the flag of St. George? 96. Was it Euro 96? Yeah. When yeah. you had a different kind of football, <coughs> yeah. Badil and Skinner, 30 years of yeah. hurt, when the atmosphere was significantly different, David, don't yes. you think? Yes. So, so was... what, what was going on there when the flag of Saint, we moved to the flag of St. George? Was it a kind of English awakening, but a different kind of Englishness that was being celebrated? It was a, a sort of tolerant, humorous Englishness. Mm. So that song which captured the mood. There was a lot of um, jingo as well. So the, the Daily Mirror, Daily Mirror, I think it was, in uh, just just the day of the semi-final against Germany, had a picture of uh, Stuart Pearce wearing a German helmet. That's right. uh, Achtung Fritz yeah. was the was the headline, and so. But he there were a lot, a lot of um, people jumped on that. The Independent, I remember, wrote a thing saying we. We don't dislike the Germans anymore. Stop it. Um, and the humorousness and warmth of the song and the sort of self-mocking thing in the song. And I remember people talking at the time how, how the, the, the St. George flag had been reclaimed from the far right. Nobody had waved it except British, what it would be, National Front in, the, in those days, uh, British National Party. Yeah, anyway, the late, late fa- fascist wing yeah. of hard right. Hard nationalism, and that was and, a tragedy, wasn't it? The flag of Saint George should have been associated yes, with the far right, absolutely. And and it was a, it was a lovely thing that it was taken back from them, but it also might have, I think possibly because we were playing Scotland in that tournament, and the Scots had always come down with their saltires, and we I remember English people being rather bemused by the intensity of Scottish national feeling around the national team, and because um, the England Scotland game had kind of been abolished. And then it came back just for one night only, special attraction in that tournament. And there's a lot of build-up to that. I think that was part of. Um, it'd be very interesting to trace, you know, the the the, the political ramifications of that yeah. off the field. You know, that you you have a split in the English football fan mentality that goes out into the nation. Mm-hmm. That you know, Englishness, English nationalism, does it start in its modern form? in that tournament. Could have done. I mean, that's that's what interests me. And I was at that game, actually, the Scotland-England game at Wembley in 96. And the atmosphere was was superb. I mean, the, Scot- the Scots fans were, were terrific. They were and, always terrific. The England yeah. fans used to be rubbish. That's right. And they used to just let the Wembley be swamped, which was fun. Yes. I remember going to an England-Scotland game where you couldn't hear the English fans at all. Yes. And the Scotland fans were you know, one but, entire end and most of the other end and almost everything in the middle It was a major well. event, wasn't it? It was a huge event and it was very passionate and it was fun to watch. And there was nothing answering it. And then in 96 there was. And then, you know, in 2016 we, we see a, a rather darker version of it. Stephen, because of the, uh, um, <clears throat> the, um, the rise of Scottish nationalism and indeed the insertiveness of Scottish nationalism, even in 96, what David is talking about, we were a year away from the Blair landslide yeah. and the new Labour landslide in 97 and then the devolution reforms that followed the creation of the Scottish Parliament. Do you think the new Englishness or the new English self-consciousness emerged in reaction to Scottish nationalism? I think it, re- it 
it emerges from the fact, and obviously by 96, although obviously the Blair landslide is in the future, and my understanding is because of what had happened in 1992, very few people were taking the landslide for granted. The development of Scottish nationalism is in of itself a reaction to the uh, the idea that Britain and England were coterminous, right? Yeah, yeah. But the second you have a Scottish Parliament and uh, what is still a Welsh Assembly, although it will become a Parliament at some point during during this Parliament, the Assembly is voting to to change its its name. Um, the second you kind of have a, a, a label for something, oh well, here is somewhere that is governed as Wales or as Scotland. You are, of course, going to have a a new sense of Englishness as something separate and different, whether it's the campaign for an English parliament or yeah, or the sense that the England team is something different and separate. And one of the interesting things is after the relative success of Team GB is how little um, energy or idea there's been that that might be an experiment worth repeating. In or, the Olympics, 2012. Yeah, in 20, yeah. Then, yeah, which of course meant that the women's team were unable to compete as a joint team in, in 2016. But it of course does mean that when you when we talk about the things in this England team is missing, one of which is a genuine left-sided player, Gareth Bale, and the other of which is a midfielder who can genuinely string something together in the middle of the park, Aaron Ramsey. So it's it's, it's odd <laughs> that we talk about this, but no one ever talks about the obvious solution. Yeah, but I don't it. think the Welsh would be pleased if you if you sort of take their two best players and put them in the England, England team. I know what you're playing. The old yearning for a British team used to be really in the 1970s in yes, particular, yes. when England were failing to qualify for World Cups. And in Scotland 74. had all and Scotland, and Scotland were qualifying for World Cups in 74 and 78, and indeed had some remarkably good players, some of whom played for Liverpool. Yeah. And I remember making that argument at schools. Why can't, why can't we have a British team? I don't think Scotland or Wales would, would want a British team. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Should we move on to talk a little bit about Germany David, they seem to be a, a team in transition. You could even say a team in trouble. What do you think? In trouble, I would say, yeah. There's no team spirit. It's strange because the level technically is is exactly as high as it was, perhaps even a little higher than it was in, in 2014 and 2010. But something's gone wrong and you could see uh, parallels politically. You know, the, the 2014 is the high point of uh, of their beautiful liberal football 
nobody i mean the germany used to be the darth vader of the world cup you know yeah. there would be everybody loved to hate them and it was it was actually great strength of the tournament there was a a real uh, a real baddie that we always always loathed who always did well um so we've the tournament actually is lost from that getting back to the germany team itself that was you know the high point of liberalism in germany and now after all the refugees have come now the uh the AFD is the populist anti-immigrant party is now the official opposition. The mood has darkened considerably and the stuff going into the tournament for the, for the Germans was very troubled. Uh, the controversy about uh, Ilke Gundogan and Mesut Ozil, German-born uh, players of Turkish families, met in London, Erdogan, President Erdogan of Turkey, when he was here. And this produced a storm of uh, outrage from left and right in, in Germany, so the, Germ- the the right was saying, um, you know, this proves they're not they're not really proper Germans, and the left was saying, what are you doing meeting a, an autocrat? So they got it from both ends. And Gundogan, when he played in a, I think it was the warm up game against Saudi Arabia, one of the warm up games anyway, hugely booed every time he touched the ball in uh, Leverkusen, and there's been a sort of meltdown in the team spirit somehow. The, the, They've the, suffered from retirements, haven't they? They've well, lost, a little bit. They've lost Philip Lahm. Lahm, Mertesacker. both of them Schweinsteiger. Are good, yeah, they're good, big, big characters. Big, big, big players in the last two tournaments. But they should have enough good players to make that work. And they had a poor run into the tournament. They, they poor, lost to yeah. Austria in, in Vienna and they struggled yeah. in, in other games too. Yeah. Most, most, most they beat the Saudis, but it was, very, it was 2-1. I think not, the New Statesman side could beat the Saudis though, David, I think. <laughs> Uh, or would put up a good show against them, yes. looking at how they performed against Russia. But it is fascinating to watch what is happening in Germany. And Stephen, do you see a mirror with in the football team and the nation? I mean, Merkel's also in deep trouble at the yeah. moment. The German national team is in deep trouble. The li- Merkel's liberalism, her inclusive plural liberalism, is also in trouble and under threat. Yeah, I mean, so Merkel is still, of course, the most popular politician in in, in Germany. But she has the problem that she's effectively killed off all of her coalition partners, which means that it's hard for her to govern uh, stably. And um, she is the one place she is not the most popular politician is within her the walls of her own party. The difficulty, of course, for everyone is then if when she does go, I can't see any leader of the CDU who would be as effectively able to govern with the SDP to steal credit for many of the initiatives of the SDP, but also be a congenial uh, coalition manager day to day. And of course, you know, Germany's um, difficulty in its modern day is the way that um, Turkish people who who live there, work there, have no path to citizenship and are not treated as proper Germans. And that will... Well, that uh, changed a bit in yeah. the early 2000s, yeah. didn't yeah. it? So <clears throat> it used to be an all-white team until yeah. about 2000, I think. Sami Kafur. Ghanaian, Ghanaian yeah. Yeah. yeah, he was the first non-white player to play for for Germany, and I think it was still West Germany even at that point because it changed. Anyway, but October ninety or something. Anyway, yeah. the change comes in the nineties. Yeah. Uh, sorry, in the two thousand. Stephen, I think Stephen's referring to sort of Turkish migrant workers yeah. as opposed <laughs> yeah, yeah, to Germans. Attention is there, but yeah. Germany is now a multiracial sure. team. 
but also a team featuring many um, Slavs or former Slavs, yes. Slavic families yes. um, the from, from the, from the, the Far East who have been in, integrated into German society. In the Eurobarometer, Germany is always the laggard of you know France, UK, Italy, Italy which actually surprised me. I would have expected Italy to be the, the lag in terms of acceptance of uh, miscegenation and mixed race uh, relationships. I think when when the when German national politics is fraught, that is always, I think, going to play itself out in a team where you have a number of people who have been, uh, uh, you know, who, who are uh, of Turkish descent, are practice Muslim, practicing Muslims, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Although, of course, part of the problem, and I always feel very sad whenever I um, criticise Mesut Özil, is we did see a bit. I think it felt very familiar that when a team plays Özil in the centre, what it gains in pretty passing up front it does look confused when it's being countered against. And mm-hmm. the mystery of Mertesacker is he's <laughs> obviously he's huge and he's slow and you look at him and you think he ought to be a terrible centre back. And yet somehow when he's not when he hasn't been able to play for Arsenal for you know for ninety minutes every game uh, our back four has looked uh, shaky and uncertain, and they looked shaky and uncertain in the extreme against Mexico. And they also, also Mertesacker, from what I understand, from talking to people at Arsenal, has wonderful um, leadership qualities behind the scenes, great inspirational mm. figure, and as did Philip Lahm, the, the former Bayern Munich player. That seems to be absent from the German side against the yes. Mexicans. They look, they look to sort of demoralised, and as you said, David, a deeply troubled team. They may also, come back. I mean, they made a. <clears throat> they made the the mistake of underestimating the Mexicans, which is kind of a feature of that style of open uh, total football for shorthand. Um, which the Germans, let's not forget that the Germans completely changed their style twelve years ago. You know, for from sort of 1954 all the way through to 2004, it was basically the same philosophy of. It, it was it was a, a style created by Zepp Herberger, who'd been the deputy coach to to uh, Otto Nerz, was it? Anyway, he was deputy coach in the Nazi period, survived the war and became the coach and masterminded the miracle of Bern, das Wunder von Bern. The, when they won the, when World, they won Cup. the World Cup against the greatest team Great that had ever been, team. the Hungarians, who hadn't lost in you know three years or something, and spirit of struggle. You know, the ball is round, he would say, meaning anything can happen. You just keep going for 90 minutes. And German teams embodied this, you know, we call them efficient and we're frightened of them. But it was from their point of view, it was always, you know, we just work really hard and we try to be fitter and we try not to make mistakes and we just keep going to the end. And it yielded tremendous results until sort of late 90s. Everybody else started being as fit and as well organized and as technically competent as they were. And they didn't have anything else. So they, you know, between ninety eight and two thousand four, they perform. Even though they got to the final in two thousand two, they were pretty terrible and becoming worse and worse. And they were humiliated in two thousand four, losing to the Portuguese reserve team in a group game, Euro two thousand four. And after that, um, there's a great book by uh, Raphael Honigstein. Das Reboot tells the story of how they turned it around, and they basically junked all their old philosophy and. Had a, developed a completely new way of, of, of raising talent. This was under Jürgen Klinsmann as Jürgen the new Klinsmann coach. and a bunch of people off the field as well. You know, there was, it was a big cultural change and they were learning from the Dutch, the French had done something, something similar after their embarrassment in not reaching the 94 finals. And then you had this wonderful tournament in 2006 where they played beautifully 
or they weren't expected to do that well. So the expectations in Germany were very low at that very point low. about the national team. And, and they Klinsmann reached the was semi. under a lot of threat going into the tournament. It was, it was. And indeed, they reached the semi, a brilliant match against Italy in well, Dortmund. Had one of the great matches. And they played beautifully all the way through. And you had this uh, great throwing off of guilt and shame and, and nervousness about German national identity. It, during that four during weeks. that tournament, I was in Germany for that tournament, yeah. and at the beginning when you arrived, no ha- flags, no flags. Having left England, where there were a lot of um, the flag of St George was everywhere, yeah. this was the golden generation. Yeah. So there were high expectations of Sven Jorn Eriksson's England yeah. team. You arrived in Germany as I did, and there were no flags. But during that tournament, as you say, there was there was a sort of an awakening, yeah. and it was a kind of benign yes. civic patriotism yes. of a kind. Germany hadn't really experienced since the war and the yeah. traumas of the Nazi period. And yeah. it was an extraordinary moment in the country. Yeah. And at the yeah. end of the tournament, because Klinsmann never stays anywhere for long, he was made, signaled his intention to step down as national coach. And Merkel was pleading with him to stay on because she recognised that something extraordinary had happened yeah. during that tournament, David. Yeah. I remember there was a good friend in Berlin that I stayed with. I did a round-the-world trip for that World Cup. I started in Germany. And then went around the world watching people watching their teams. And I, when I, you know, before I left, uh, my friend in in Berlin that I was staying with, he he had four flags on his balcony. You know, there was it was Germany, but also South Korea, America, and Italy. He said, "Well, you know, just put a German flag." I said, "No, I don't feel I don't feel right about it. it doesn't feel." By the end, he was yeah, you know, face painting and and. That's right. d- Happy, happy partying like everybody else. It was very beautiful to yes, see. It, it, and that carried on and reached its uh, pinnacle in 2014 with this, this team you couldn't... Nobody could dislike that team in 2014. Was, they played beautifully. Their spirit was lovely. They were generous, even when they thumped Brazil well, 7-1. Well, even when they annihilated Brazil 7-1, the word is they held off. Yeah, they held they off. They could have scored and, 10 or 12 because Brazil had a collective breakdown during that yeah. match. And, you and they, were, see, they were very respectful. It was, you know, all the, all the traumas and horribleness of the, like the 82 team that, that fixed a game with Algeria. And then in the, in the 82 semifinal with France, nearly murdered Harold Schumacher, the yes, German horrendous. Goal, all close to killing Batistan. Batistan. You put him in a coma. Horrific actually. event. And, um, so, and all of that was gone. You know, the, 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 the ugly German team playing ugly football was n- suddenly no more, and it was new, multi-culti, liberal Germany, sort of the, our, in the age of Trump, the last best hope of humankind. Um, and now it's, un- it's in trouble. So, Are you concerned about Germany? Be- I mean, not the football team, but surely you'd welcome their struggles on the pitch. But are you concerned about liberalism under assault in Germany? Um, yeah, I mean, ultimately, the, the, the joy of proportional representation is it does slightly inoculate liberalism <laughs> right and 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 inoculate and you know it's like it, it's the political of a good academy system right it, in good in bad times uh, a, a pluralist electoral system will will bail bail you out of an awful lot i am um yeah and in some ways i, I think it would be uh, welcome if there were a german leadership that was less committed to the rules of the eurozone in their current form which have helped to incubate popular populism elsewhere within the currency area. But it is obviously a, a problem if you do not have um, effective leadership within the, the bloc, particularly uh, 
with Brexit happening and particularly as, as Macron gets into further difficulties at home. I mean, I actually would like Germany to do better at this World Cup. One, because they are really the only hope I have of rescuing my appalling performance in this <laughs> this lobby league. You are worried about this lobby I am, performance. I am deeply worried about it. It's really upsetting me. It's just Did eating... you get to pick or do you just... Oh, so you pick 10 teams, okay. right? Um, and you, your, your first team, everything you get... Three points for a win, a point per goal. And first team, that's multiplied by 10. Last team, multiplied by got one. It. Like a Eurovision. Like Eurovision. So I picked Argentina as my first team because they've got a really soft route to the uh, semi-final. I picked Germany, then Spain. And I can't remember what oh, my remaining seeded team was, was France. All good. It sounds pretty solid to me. I, I know, but it's just going horribly wrong because <laughs> I'm just... Because my uh, my long tail of non seeded teams have all done really badly. Germany are doing. Don't worry, Stephen. We haven't we haven't completed the first round yet. We're coming to the end of the program, and I just as David's with us, David Winner. I just wanted to end by asking him about what's happened to Dutch football. You're, pr- you're prying into private grief here. What's going on? What has happened? Well, it's a bit like um, Britain with the Industrial Revolution. They were innovators, and so in the same way as Britain invented railways and steel production and stuff, uh, and then got overtaken in these fields. Uh, the Dutch invented the way we all play now. So you look at that England team last night, they were playing, frankly, a Dutch way. You know, pressing, switching position, keeping the ball, movement, not not sort of individual battling, all of that. Uh, not fixed positions. So the, the Dutch got rather uh, complacent. And they had this extraordinary run for 40 years or so where this small nation produced an outrageous number of, of world-level players from uh, Cruyff through Van Basten and Hullet to Bergkamp and uh, Arjen Robben. And now the production line has stopped. In large part, that's that's because everybody, you know, they haven't got that bad. They haven't produced any great players recently. And uh, they're all their rivals have. So Belgium, Germany, France, uh, England... Uh, who the Dutch used to look down on, on all of those, and they 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 have better young players than than the Dutch do, um, so they're a bit they're a bit lost, and they are now having a sort of soul searching, having failed to qualify for the last two tournaments and been really abject in their failures, um, the the last good generation of Robin and they Van got Persen to the twenty ten World Cup final in yes. South Africa, but yeah, and then, then, then they, but they were dreadful in the final, brutal. It was a yes, brutal awful, form awful. of football of a kind that really shocked me. Yeah, yeah. Well, well, that, well was that, that an early was, indicator that, was, that, that something kind of, it was partly because they weren't very good at doing that. So I remember Dennis Bergkamp saying that he wasn't uh, that that distressed by it in retrospect. I think uh, Kreif, uh, on the on the day of the final. You know, he sided with Spain, absolutely, who were more his protégés, playing his kind of football. Uh, Kreif, the Johan Kreif, the great sort of father figure, great player um, from the 70s, who is who's then kind of responsible for, when, as coach of Barcelona, bringing that kind of football to Barcelona. Yeah, he then, coached Guardiola, didn't he, at Barcelona? Yes. So, so the, the modern football is basically Kreif, you know, the Spain, the great Germany team of, of four years ago. It was also uh, via a slightly different route through Van Gaal. Um, played in a Dutch way. So they, everybody else plays Dutch. They got left behind. Um, they are now kind of floundering around. They think they, they produced their FA produced a report last year, I think it was, saying, you know, our big problem is lack of winning mentality. So it's like the, mm. a, a mirror image of the, mm. the English decline. Mm. We, we failed. 
so often because we had all the winning mentality, but not the technical skills. Or the you say the Dutch stuff. were great innovators as they were. Yeah. Simon Cooper had a good line about Wenger yeah. after he stepped down at Arsenal. And he said the story of Wenger and Wenger's decline was that you can't, he proved you cannot be a pioneer twice. Yes, yes, I agree Is it with the that. same with the Dutch? Yes. Well, they, they have, they did keep renewing it and refreshing it. So the golden age of the of the 70s where the term total football uh, is born and you have these two wonderful teams in 74 and 78 and a kind of classic Dutch screw up in 76 where they're fighting amongst themselves and they shoot themselves in the foot and don't win that where they absolutely should have done. But they lost both of those World Cup finals in 74 and 78. Yeah, they lost they lost deservedly because they were taking it not seriously enough and they were or they were overawed or there's all sorts of theories about why they lost to the Germans. They lost in 78 Argentina they were essentially cheated. Um, you know, there's talk of uh, the, that there was gamesmanship all through intimidation. The Argentinians should never been in the final anyway because they bought the game, the semi-final game, effectively uh, against Peru in the in the, the last. It was it wasn't semi-finals; it was groups. That's right, yeah. um, and then in, in extra time in that seventy-eight final, suddenly the Argentinians who've been dead on their feet suddenly running around like you know it's just the beginning of the game and. So what happened there? Well, it's never been proved, but the suggestion, and uh, lots of people, including me, believe it, that, 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 there, were, that there were drugs administered somehow, uh, stories of players not, not able to sleep for three days afterwards. So they're so hyped up. And there was one, you know, there were drug testing regimes, but rather, rather fallible and weak uh, in that one of the Argentine players in that tournament tested pregnant. <laughs> so it's possible. It's just possible just that he possible wasn't something was going on. Some, some, okay, David. On that rather eccentric note, I think <laughs> we should leave this um, episode. Before you go, who's your tip for the World Cup? Spain. Stephen, I didn't ask you last week. Oh, it's true. I got out of it last week. Uh, I am going to go for France, and I'm going to withhold my <laughs> my prediction. You've been listening to Political Football. Thank you to, to David Winner and to my co-presenter Stephen Bush. Thanks for listening to Political Football. We'll be back next week with another episode. In the meantime, you can send us your questions and comments for future episodes via Twitter. I'm on at Stephen KB and Jason is at Jason Cowley NS. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com.